Hi, I'm Nicole Heller. This is Reboot 2030, the Democracy School's YouTube channel. My guest today is Roberto Castaldi. Roberto is the, the CEO of the International Center for European and Global Governance. He's an associate professor of political philosophy at the eCampus University in Italy. He co-edits Perspectives on Federalism and he's the director of Euractive Italy, the Italian chapter of a pan-European uh, new media platform. Um, Roberto will reflect on um, the sort of experience he's had and the kind of insights he gained from the, uh, um, the conference on the future of Europe, which was a pan-European, a, a major participatory exercise uh, conducted by the European Commission and its uh, other institutions. Um, and he will focus, especially in the second part of the discussion, on, on the scope and scale for further European integration, which he believes is something that uh, this conference supported in a, in a big way. So I can see that Roberto is already here in the waiting room. Let me let me invite him in. There you go. There he is coming on. Roberto, can you hear me? Yes, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Good to hear you. How how's how's life in Italy at the moment? Well, quite hectic uh, as uh, everywhere. There were uh, um, local election this uh, Sunday and some referenda that didn't reach the quorum. And uh, of course, there is a lot of debate regarding uh, energy, the war, uh, and so on, like everywhere. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. It's it's a kind of uh, it seems to keep us all very much uh, sort of focused on the whole situation in Eastern Europe, really, and, and the impacts and effects of that uh, on the rest of Europe. Um, Roberto, um, you have been following quite closely uh, the, um, the kind of ongoings around the, uh, uh, the conference on the future of Europe. Um, this has been quite a major exercise, and it's, it's interesting that it happened at that point in time where Europe is facing all these additional and extra challenges. Um, if you reflect back on the on the conference, what was it about? What what are the sort of the key points that you would pull out as a sort of the, uh, the the major learning points from that conference? Well, the first one is the fact that for the first time the European Union was involving uh, common citizens in the discussion about the future of Europe. And this was done in two ways, with the digital platform on the one hand and with the citizen panels on the other. And I think that this, the, what was significant was that the idea coming out of the digital panel were very much the same of those coming out from the panel. And this is because if you take any citizen, normal citizen that doesn't know much about the EU and put him or her in a situation that as to think about the EU and its future, the result is quite clear. We need more uh, to the EU to be more efficient, more democratic, and so on. And so the result is getting rid of unanimity, abolish national veto, because this is both uh, undemocratic and uh, inefficient, strengthen the European Union competencies on crucial issues like foreign policy, defense, uh, fiscal and economic policy, and he, what is amazing is the fact that when you involve citizens, there is a request for more Europe, for a, for a better Europe, but also for a stronger Europe. So when we look at the different proposals regarding economic and social policy, health and strengthening European health competencies like we have seen with the pandemic and so on, there is a strong request also for treaty reform in order to increase the competencies and power of the union. So it, it has been an exercise that was very important and that provide the strongest push for a reform of the European Union. What, what, I, find, what I find fascinating is, is that people have such strong opinions about the EU. Uh, I say it's fascinating because one of the criticisms that I hear quite often is, is that the European Commission in particular is quite removed from everyday life. So if it really is so removed from everyday life, why does it trigger such strong emotions? Why people feel so strongly about it if, if apparently it doesn't have so much bearing on their everyday lives? So when, when you say that, um, that there was a strong, you know, sort of a strong calling for greater integration, for uh, more transparency, for more democracy, for more, tra and so on and so forth, um, 
what, what what kind of examples did did, uh, did citizens give? What was the sort of the, if you like, the experiential background for these demands? Well, we have to think that there's 800 citizens were selected randomly with an algorithm that was trying to pick people in order to uh, represent the wide differentiation of Europe in terms of uh, working kind, uh, age, uh, gender, uh, uh, study, level of studying, and so on and so forth. So it was a very heterogeneous uh, uh, group. But uh, they came out with ideas, for example, about a European referendum. So having the possibility to have referenda at European level uh, uh, to discuss things. So what is uh, interesting to me is that it's true maybe that sometimes people feel that the commission is far away, but this is true also for the national government. Still people, they feel an identity with their... uh, member state. But what is arising is that they feel also to be Europeans. So there is a stronger attachment to the European Union, even if the institution may seem relatively remote and so on. And the other thing is that people are starting realizing the huge impact that you have on their everyday life. This was made particularly clear with the pandemic. What would have had happened if we didn't have the commission buying uh, the vaccine for everybody. We would have had competition among member states, which is what is happening today regarding energy. Confronted with the energy crisis, we are seeing foreign ministers from all countries going to the same uh, 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 external countries trying to reach deal to get the gas and so on. If we had sent the energy commissioner, uh, Kadri Simpson, to negotiate for everybody, we would get more gas at a cheaper price. And people are realizing this, that with the pandemic, the ability of the commission to get the vaccine for everybody was very important. The EU was also able to give vaccine to the rest of the world, the poorest country, more than anybody else. At the same time, with the next generation EU, people realize that if the countries have a chance to grow after the pandemic, is thanks to this uh, European solidarity. And this was particularly significant in countries like Italy, where I live, which, which is the largest recipient of the next generation EU because it was the country's worst hit by the pandemic. So I, I think that all this is, uh, was uh, an, had an impact, just like the war. The Russian invasion of Ukraine, of course, uh, had an impact on the debate of the last part of the conference, in uh, having people realize that we need a much stronger European voice on foreign security and defense policy and calling for uh, more integration in these fields. So the overall result was the request for a very significant strengthening of the European Union. That's really quite interesting. Now, but why why would it matter what, what this conference decides or what it thinks? What kind of what kind of influence does that have on policymaking at a sort of a, at a European level? Well, we will see uh, over time. But for instance, uh, last week, uh, the European Parliament approved a resolution asking to start uh, treaty reform to implement the proposal coming out of the Conference on the Future of Europe. Because, of course, the Parliament is the only directly elected institution in the EU and feels the pressure to provide a positive answer to the request expressed by the citizen. And throughout the conference, the parliament has been the most vocal about the need to implement the proposal coming out of the conference. This proposal, some two thirds of the proposal, about roughly two thirds of the proposal can be implemented through European legislation. But about between one third and one fourth of the proposal require treaty change because they are about uh, strengthening the competencies and power of the European Union or creating entirely new uh, institutions like the European referendum, for example. So the European Parliament has been very quick in uh, uh, adopting a resolution asking the European Council uh, in June 23 and 24 to vote to start a convention to reform the treaty. And of course, this can be a very quick convention because what has to be done has already been sketched through the Conference of the Future of Europe that produce very specific proposals. So the parliament is going to work to produce the amendment to the treaty that are needed to implement those proposals. At this point, I think there will be some increasing pressure on the member states to approve this proposal. 
because these are coming out of a wide debate in which the governments were involved, the commission was involved, European parliament, the national parliament were involved and citizens were involved. It's the first time. So why shouldn't the government listen to what all the representative institution and the citizen propose in a wide debate that lasted one year? So there is some relevance because it's putting pressure on the government. And we've seen this with a split immediately after the conference some uh, member states, including Italy, uh, France, uh, said that we should uh, implement this proposal. Some others said that we shouldn't rush to treaty reform, that we should first implement what can be done without treaty reform, and then we'll see. And there, so there will be a split, but such a statement, even for those against, would not have been made if there wasn't a conference. So the conference has put squarely into the agenda the issue of treaty reform and is forcing people to take a stand about it. We may have it, we may not have it, we don't know yet, there is a fight between member states, but this is on the agenda thanks to the Conference on the Future of Europe. Um, very often with these kinds of participatory exercises, there is a, a, an umbrella group or a campaigning organization, a owner, um, who, who owns the, the outcomes of such a conference and who will continue to put pressure uh, on stakeholders to, you know, to take note and to, to, take, to take these proposals forward. Is there some kind of, is there, is there such a group emerging from the conference that will kind of keep up the pressure or is the conference and all that's associated with that now in the past? Well, the European Parliament uh, basically is an institution, but also the Commission to a certain extent uh, has committed to implement the proposals and uh, to present the legislative proposal necessary to implement those proposals, those that don't require treaty reform, while the Parliament is focused on the one that require treaty reform. So we see that the two main supranational institutions involved in the conference are fighting actively to implement those proposals. And of course, there are also NGOs, grassroots uh, organizations that have been involved in the conference and are pushing uh, uh, to this end. The main one, of course, are the European U um, uh, the Union of European Federalists, UEF, uh, and uh, the European Movement International, that are the traditional main pro-European uh, organization and that have been very active in the conference. Uh, the uh, president of UEF is Sandro Gozzi, an MEP that uh, was also a member of the conference. And uh, some of the vice president of UEF uh, were also members of the conference, like uh, other MEPs, uh, Brando Benifei and Dominic Ruiz de Veza. And so there was, uh, uh, but also other like, uh, um, for instance, uh, uh, um, the vice president of the European Parliament, uh, Fabio Massimo Castaldo, and many others. So there was a strong push uh, by the pro-European organization in the conference through representative of the parliament mainly, but also through representative of civil society. And they were very successful in, uh, in, in bringing about their proposal because they were reasonable proposal. I mean, if let's make a, a thought exercise, an ex thought experiment. If anybody in any European member state propose a constitutional reform internally to substitute the government with a meeting of the regional governor that decide by unanimity, this person will be taken for a mad person. Because it makes no sense to substitute a government with an assembly of the regional government decided by unanimity. This is undemocratic, inefficient and so on. But this is the way the European Union works. So it's just normal that citizens ask to change things, to abolish unanimity, to strengthen the European Parliament, to strengthen the Commission, to strengthen the supranational institution that have as their mandate to take care of the European interest and not of national interest. Because when you are acting at European level, you need to take care of the European interest. And this is just a common sense. So I'm not surprised that the citizen in the conference came out with these kind of proposals. Um, you've been obviously following this right from the beginning. Um, there must have been proposals at the very beginning of the conference that you considered really quite brilliant or quite important, but that have fallen by the wayside, that somehow didn't receive the oxygen or didn't receive the attention that some people might have hoped for. Are there any that come to mind that you think that would need to be picked 
picked up on later yes. on again. Uh, absolutely. Fis- the, the issue of fiscal policy of European taxes, because it's easier for citizens to identify the needs than the means. So on the one hand, there were plenty of requests about European Union doing this and that, but there was relatively little thought about how to get the resources to do this and that. So it's, of course, we want the European Union to do more on economic, social, education, green, uh, defense, and so on. But there was uh, relatively little attention paid to the fact that we need, in all these things, cost, and we need to find the, the resource, the financial resource in the means to do that. There was a proposal by the Union of European Federalists in this regard to provide the Union with fiscal uh, power, but this it was very successful in the digital platform, but didn't uh, uh, fly very high in the panels and in the plenary, even though it was included, this was mentioned in the final report, but it didn't get much attention. But of course, this is crucial. In all the federal system are based also on fiscal federalism, so on the possibility for the various level of government to raise uh, uh, taxes uh, and have their own rev- revenue. So the issue of own resources is crucial for the EU. But what is, uh, uh, is a pity that is a little attention because European taxes are very peculiar. Because when we look at what we are discussing when we discuss uh, European taxes is how to tax uh, organization entities that are able to avoid paying national taxes. So we talk about uh, a carbon tax or taxing those who are uh, polluting the environment so they are producing costs for the society, a carbon border adjustment mechanism so to tax those who produce goods uh, and export them into Europe without uh, respecting our environmental standards. Or we are discussing about the European financial transaction tax that goes against speculative uh, uh, financial transaction. We are talking about the digital tax, so how to tax the digital giants that are able to amass huge profits without paying basically almost no taxes in the member states. Oh, this is the digital tax. I mean, people tend to think about it in terms of like a Google tax. But it, it, of course, it goes much, much further than doesn't it? Because, of course, if we really do believe in digitalization and if we do believe that we can, if you like, automate, you know, like a, a large portion of, you know, manufacturing processes, then we're going to have to start finding the tax base for this. So a digital Absolutely. tax isn't just about taxing information, but it's about taxing really digital processes of all kinds, manufacturing as much as services, isn't it? Absolutely. And especially services, because services are able to, through platform, to produce a huge revenue, but are paying basically very, very little taxes. So there is uh, all this kind of uh, discussion are very interesting also from a social point of view. Because on the one hand, this tax would raise the overall uh, uh, amount of revenue for public purposes. At the same time, they would not be increasing the burden on single citizens. Because this is not saying that uh, you are raising the taxes on personal income. Not at all. You are taxing realities that today are able to avoid national taxation, but that would not be able to avoid European taxation because they would need to get out of the European market, which is the largest market in the world. So nobody can afford to stay out of it. So by exploiting the size of the European Union market, we are able to increase the tax base without placing a burden, a further burden on European citizens, but going after those realities that avoid national taxation. So it's very good from a from, from society perspective in two ways, because it increased the overall revenue, but it's also a balancing act, a social justice uh, act in a sense. But part of that would also be tax harmonization, wouldn't it, across, so that we don't end up with sort of a race to the bottom, you know, where European countries compete Absolutely. on, on, on Absolutely. tax. Absolutely. There was a communication by the Juncker Commission at the very end of their term, about uh, um, further integration on tax policy, which would be possible also without treaty change by using the pastoral clause that allows to move uh, a certain uh, sector from unanimity to qualified majority by a unanimous decision by of European Council. So the Juncker Commission asked the European Council to take this unanimous decision to move fiscal policy to qualified majority voting, showing what would be the advantage. So what would be the 
directive that at that point could be uh, approved by qualified majority that would not be approved by unanimity. And these were regarding about tax harmonization and getting rid of fiscal paradise inside the EU. And of course, this would have raised over five years, something like I think 300 billion euro of more revenue. So we are talking about uh, a huge amount of money and, uh, uh, and by avoiding this tax competition and this uh, 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 to the race to the bottom among member states. So this would be something that is very important that again is a, a, an element also of social justice beside increasing the overall uh, uh, revenue at a time in which we massively need public investment to finance the green transition, the digital transition, but also uh, uh, defense. And this is the other interesting element because with the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, now we uh, risk a very strong increase in national defense spending, but this increase would mostly be wasteful. Because today, the 27 member states of the EU have a, a military expenditure, this, which is about three times more than Russia, but have no deterrence capacity. Why? Because we don't have a one European army, but we have 27 national armies. We have plenty of different combat system and uh, system weapons and so on. Many more than the US, many more than China, many more than Russia and so on. So there is, a, this uh, uh, multi multiplication of, uh, uh, of expenditure to keep 27 national uh, uh, defenses that is basically a waste of money. So overall, <laughs> we, now we are increasing the national military expenditure. But if we keep having uh, national defense, uh, even if we increase to 2% of the GDP, this would not put us in a situation that we would be able to deter Russia. So the issue is not just to increase uh, national uh, military expenditure, but to pull them together at a European level. If we create a European defense, then what we are spending now, which would be, which is the third uh, uh, world expenditure after the US and China, would probably be enough for Europe to have a significant military capacity able to deter a potential uh, uh, aggressor. But the point is to pull it together, not to keep it split in 27 national defenses. Well, I think there's, you know, when, um, um, when, when we're talking about sort of like integration of sort of the kind of the, the military industrial complex, I think there's a couple of sets of issues. There's issues around standards, isn't there? It's to do with technical standards, you know, that the, the equipment needs to be able to talk to each other. There needs to be compatibility uh, among different yeah, weapon systems. Uh, and I believe that is not really a given in many cases. I mean, there's there's quite some variance. Then there's a second area has to do with the whole nuclear debate, which is, of course, you know, France is a nuclear power, uh, the only one uh, now in, in Europe because the UK has left. Um, and, and there is, and, and Macron is making a strong case for basically upgrading, you know, France's nuclear arsenal uh, in the interest of European defense. And, and I think there needs to be a debate around, you know, to what extent we want to sort of Europeanize a uh, 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 French nuclear defense uh, 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 policy. And I think there's some interesting stuff, but it needs to have sort of a debate. Um, and then, of course, as you said, there is issues around, you know, efficiency and, 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 and waste, um, you know, and, and, and these are, but these are quite sort of distinct. And I think when, when governments, you know, a German government or an Italian or a French government think about their military, um, there, there is still an awful lot of um, sort of national pride uh, and, and, and also sort of national identity tied up in those military tra traditions. Um, and, and I think that's, that's one of the stamping blocks, isn't it? Is that we, that we, of course, this is also very much where it would be a project that goes way beyond economics, because if we had a fully integrated military, how could we fight each other in future? You know, this, this idea that, you know, the, the kind of interdependency of European economics and uh, economies, um, that if you would broaden that out to, from the kind of industrial to the kind of industrial military complex, that would guarantee peace uh, like, uh, you know, in, in, in much better ways. Um, so so when, you, when you reflect on the debate that you see around, um, you know, around the sort of the, the, the integration of the, the, the military uh, in, in Europe, uh, sort of the, the creation of a European army, for the lack of a better word, um, 
how how do these separate debates in your in in your in, you know in your view kind of how do they develop and where's the big where are the biggest stumbling blocks in this? Well, uh, as you mentioned, there are many, but let me start with the first you mentioned that is interoperability. Now, this is not the, really the main issue because through NATO there has been a great deal of work about interoperability, so this has been basically sorted out. The problem is more of the industrial military because there are we have many weapon systems because each country is financing basically its own uh, national uh, uh, military complex, at least a big one. Now, this is the crucial issue because now that Germany has uh, uh, decided to spend 100 billion euro on defense every year, if this, goes at <laughs> if this goes at national level, it means that we will create an uh, uh, industrial military complex in Germany that will make it impossible to go for a European defense. And from that point of view, it's very important that the day after Scholz uh, said that he was putting 100 billion euro on the uh, defense, Draghi in the European Parliament, in the Italian Parliament, answered saying that everybody now is increasing its defense expenditure. We have to decide if to do that at national or at European level. So Italy was pointing out immediately to the fact that this decision should be taken by merging this expenditure at European level. If we think about what we have done with the monetary union, I think this could be. Um, uh, uh, provide us some ideas about how to do the defense union as well, but with some differences. So I'll start with the difference and then I'll go to the similarity. The difference is that we have a single currency, but we won't have a single defense union. Uh, by single defense, I mean one European defense that is in place of the national ones. When we created the single currency, we had one currency instead of the old national currency. Well, when we, uh, with a common defense, it means that we will have a European defense on top of the national one. So the issue is uh, we won't be able, we will have a dual army, like in the US at the beginning. At the beginning of the American Federation, the federal army was extremely small and the national militias were much stronger, much larger. And this is why they were able eventually to become the bulk of the two uh, armies in the civil war. Uh, but the federal uh, uh, army had two things, uh, that it decided the standard uh, weapon system for also for the militias, and it had West Point, the military academy, so that there was a single strategic culture for the federal army and for the militia. So I think that we should go in that direction. So to create a European defense, we need to decide which part, what elements of the military we pull together at European level. So to create a European uh, ready com combat ready forces, 16,000 people like we decided in 1999 and never implemented could be an idea. Then we need to decide what is the governance for the defense and what are the resources. And here the monetary union experience came, uh, comes to mind. When we decide to do the monetary union, we pull together 20% of the reserves of the national central banks at the European level. Now, to create a European defense, we can do the same. Let's say that 20% of the national military defense expenditure go to the European Defense Fund. Or we can take a different way and say, let's take 2021 as the basis and this is what you'll spend on national defense. All the increase is pulled at European level. So the answer to the Russian invasion to Ukraine is pushing us to create a European defense. So what you spend on top of what you have done, spent in 2021 goes to the European level is done together. This way we are not taking away anything from uh, the national defenses, but we are creating a European capacity. It, it's interesting, let me just interrupt you there very briefly. I mean, one point that you made that really stuck earlier, and I would like to come back to that because that is such a critical point. It, you know, Germany's announcement to spend, you know, a hundred billion on defense and the way this was taken up in other European countries. This is not common awareness in Germany. Uh, so this is a really, really, this is a point that really needs to sink in, that, that, that this is not a uniformly positive development, but that essentially you could read it as a, as an attempt by Germany to outspend 
the rest of Europe to maintain a sort of a, a military supremacy. And I think this is something to really to, to be quite aware of and also to campaign around to make sure that this because that would block any kind of you know, community level development. That's a really important point you raised there. It's the decision by Germany to spend this kind of money on the national defense only, it will be perceived as the decision for Germany to go alone. That's not right. Not to try and build a European answer, a European uh, that, That's right. And, and this is not, this is not, this is because not in the kind of public awareness in Germany. This kind of issue really needs to be taken into the public domain and into public discourse in Germany. It's not out here. People don't think of it in those terms, but it's absolutely true. Because if people often think with the target of 2% of GDP and so on. Well, it, with this addition, Germany will spend more than 2% of GDP. But even if it was 2% of GDP, since Germany's GDP is much larger than those of any other European country, basically, Germany would spend more than France and Italy together which would be the second and third uh, largest uh, uh, military expenditure in the EU. So it would be outspending the... Uh, I the think this is a really, this is a, this is a point that, you know, that this is a highly political issue, which in a way would sort of, if you like, set the direction of sort of like military integration for, for decades to come. So I think this is an interesting, just a point to kind of take note of and to kind of uh, to, 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 uh, to remember. The other thing which I think is, is kind of in this debate kind of gets lost. And this is the difference between, shall we say, military assistance, the things we do like in Mali or in Afghanistan or wherever, which, yeah, we kind of sell it as national defense, but actually we're not really defending Germany or Italy by fighting a war in Mali. What we do is we defend our interests in Mali or in Afghanistan, but that's a different issue. And in a way, in a way maybe like when it comes to military spending, this kind of question of competency, you know, what should be national, we have to somehow reflect it or link it to foreign policy. So, and-, and Absolutely. And because but only- If we look at the national defense, we basically never use uh, our national uh, armed force uh, alone. They are yeah. always part right. of multinational contingents. They are right. European or NATO mission, basically. So, the, the, but this shows that national defense doesn't make much sense except right. for pride, identity, and so on. So we, we mentioned, so the other, the, we need to decide how to finance it. And this can be done by putting a certain percentage of the national defense, by putting the increase in the European defense fund, and European Peace Facility, and maybe we can create an incentive by saying, for example, that what you put into the European Defense Fund is not calculating in the structural deficit, like we did for, for instance, for the Juncker Plan, the European Strategic Investment Plan, that the national contribution to that one were taken out of the calculation of structural deficit at national level, for example, and. Uh, or the other possibility is to merge two of these. And the other issue is that the governance, because you cannot create a European defense capacity without creating a European government that is able to decide when and how to use that military capacity. This is the same issue that was raised at the time of the European defense community in the early 50s, when we said, okay, we have to do also the European political community. We must have a government to decide when to use our European military forces. And this was very, made very clear also by Draghi again in a debate in the Italian parliament last December when he was asked if he was in favor of the European defense. And he said, of course, but we have to be aware that to have a European defense, we must have also a European political union, a European government and so on. So uh, this is a, a, a crucial element. And uh, regarding what you mentioned about Germany, we have to uh, not to forget the other side of the coin, which is France. Because like the monetary union was essentially the Europeanization of the Deutschmark. Creating a European defense is essentially, the, and a foreign policy, is the Europeanization of the uh, French seat at the UN and the French force de frappe. That's right. Because you want, I mean, if you want to have a European foreign policy, it means that you have the European Union in all the main international arena, which means that is the European Union, which participate in the UN Security Council and not France. It means that is the European Union participate in the IMF, in the World Bank, and so on and so forth. So really, really, Roberto, what we could do is we could have the European Security Council 
in Strasbourg and we would move the European Parliament up to Brussels to save all those journeys back and forth, the French would have a really important institutions and we would unify the Parliament in Brussels. Well, I, I, <laughs> the, uh, the, the issue I think is different. I, mean, I think that your idea is a good one, but not for a European Security Council, but for the European Military Academy. What, whatever uh, we call it, or yes. A head, or a headquarter of the European military in Strasbourg, That's like right. the Central Bank is in Germany, is That's in Frankfurt. Right. It makes sense that the European military headquarters are in France because That's right. just like the monetary union was the organization of the Deutschmark, the European defense is the organization of the force de frappe. So it makes sense. But we should not go for a European Security Council uh, coping the UN Security Council. No, 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 no. That's right. Because, because this, this, this is the idea that many people have. This does, the, European, the UN Security Council doesn't work because it's an intergovernmental organization. We need to have a federal government that is responsible for foreign security policy. So it means that to give more power to the high representative, vice president of the commission, to have like commission is essentially the embryo of a federal government or a parliamentary nature. So to have the commissioner or minister, if we want to call them as we call it the national level for foreign policy and for defense. And of course we will have also the council in the EU, we have a council of minister but we don't have a defense formation for the Council of Ministers. We should create that, like we have for foreign policy. And, uh, but they should vote by majority vote, not by qualified majority, not by unanimity. This way the we problem, can have... Of course, the problem, of course, Roberto, is, is when I think about sort of military structures, take the US, but just one example, there is a commander-in-chief and he sits in the White House. You know, where would our commander-in-chief sit? Who, who would that be? Would that in be the, the president of the commission or? In the commission. In the commission, because the commission is the embryo of the government. Now, in a, in a transition, we can also think differently. That the, let's, another possibility uh, is to think about the European Union and the evolution in a, a federal evolution of the European Union, we have to take into account uh, inertia and path dependence. If we think how the European Union works today, we could also imagine uh, that the, a federal, uh, for a new federal form of government that would resemble the French semi-presidential system. Now, in France, we have a government that is responsible to the parliament and the president is directly elected. Now, the president has uh, many power, mainly on foreign defense policy. The government has it on economic policy. If it is of the same party like the president, basically the president, uh, is uh, the head. But occasionally there have been government of a different party than the president and the government will decide on economics and the president on foreign security policy. Now, we could think about the European Council as the collective presidency of the European Union, taking responsibility for foreign and defense policy. Like in Switzerland, in Switzerland, we have a collective presidency, for yeah. example. So we could think the European Council as the collective presidency of the Union, like we have it in Switzerland, but with the power that are attributed to the French presidents, which are significant in foreign security policy. But this may work only if the European Council decide by qualified majority, not by unanimity. That's the crucial issue. In that case, we may also think that European Council acting as a collective presidency take responsibility for foreign security policy, so is the ultimate commander in chief. My preference would be for the commission, to work as a parliamentary government with all the power of the government rather than, but both are possible solution that may work. So that may allow the European Union to have a foreign security and defense policy. The other issue is that this is the time for France to put their offer. Because in the moment that Germany puts on the, on the slide of the balance, 100 billion euro, to convince Germany that they should put this in the European uh, defense fund rather than national defense, it's time for France to put on the other slide of the balance, the Europeanization of the UN seat and of the force of France. Because if France put what it can put to the European defense, then Germany can put what it can. So on the one hand, there is money. On the other hand, there is nuclear weapons and the UN uh, permanent seat. And not only that, also plenty more experience in actual military operations. Absolutely, absolutely. But the, but, but the issue is that 
the, now we have, beside what is uh, kind of the intangibles, let's say, there are also the tangibles. So if Germany is to put a lot of tangibles, because 100 billion euro are a lot of tangibles, France also needs to put some tangibles in it. So I think that the, we can have a European defense if there is a big package uh, deal between France and Germany so that France accept the Europeanization of the force de frappe and the UN Security Council and Germany accept to put the money into the European Defense Fund rather than the National German Army. But this uh, won't happen uh, probably in, uh, in a moment, but we need to have a plan. Like for the monetary union, in Maastricht, we approved a plan to reach the monetary union by 1999. So it took us seven years of painful adjustment to reach the criteria and uh, start the single currency. We can think about uh, steps and transition that will bring us to European defense. Let's start by pooling the money on uh, the European Defense Fund. And for example, having a, per, a representative of the commission together with the French representative in the UN Security Council at all time and so on and so forth. And having kind of, of, a, of, of a roadmap that step-by-step, step, the more we pull the money, the more we Europeanize the French tools as there, well. And in 10 years, let's say we reach a fully fledged uh, European defense, in which we have fully Europeanized the uh, Security Council seat and the force of trap and uh, the military expenditure to a great extent. The, the, uh, I mean, the, I think that the 10 year window is, is not a, a very good window in this particular case, because um, if NATO survives in its current form for another 10 years, then, you know, I think we're kind of probably through that rough patch. My greater worry would be that the next American president, if it's not Trump, then it's going to be a Trumpian figure. And Trump himself has already kind of threatened that he'll pull out of NATO. Now, this is not just Trump. There's a, a large grouping within Absolutely. the Republican Party who don't want to fund defense for the world anymore. They kind of they they feel that we want to have some of that kind of like educational spending that Europe has. We want to have some of this road building. That, that road building that Europe has. Uh, and they said, they said, well, we want to spend less on defending Europe and more on basically building up our own country. And this, if this happens, this would happen in more like sort of within a five-year time window. Um, yeah. And then the question is, you take the US out of NATO, but then we basically already have a European defense structure, don't we? No, the, the, two things. Na the US will not pull out of NATO formally in the same way as russia will not attack ukraine is that the same kind of no no no, no no the, the point is that the us have no interest in formally pulling out of the alliance uh, what may happen is that the net that the us participation in the alliance is not an efficient security guarantee because trump said that the Balkan, the, the baltic countries independence is not his business so basically the article five of NATO, he doesn't feel obliged to intervene if Russia attacks the Baltic. So that, that's the issue, but we should never forget what was NATO about. NATO was created to keep the US in Europe, the Russian out of Europe and the German down. That was NATO. The US in, the Russian out, the German down. That, now, we have to create a European defense because NATO is not a credible security guarantee anymore for two reasons. First, the hegemonic struggle at world level is between the US and China. So the strategic focus of the US is on the Pacific, which is also the highest uh, increasing economy area in the world. They don't give a damn about Europe, nor about the Middle East and Africa, because they also have energy independence. The US is the largest energy producer in the world now. So they are now in Ukraine because they were forced to, but we should never forget that when Russia attacked Ukraine, the US answer was not to uh, send weapons to Ukraine, but to invite Zelensky to take a plane and flee the country. So the US didn't want to get involved. They offered the president to flee the country so that the Russian would simply get it in a few days, we will accept the fait accompli like we did in Crimea and Donbass in 2014, and we'll do some 
safe facing uh, sanction to Russia and continue business as usual, buying oil and gas from Russia as we did before. The truth, because the, the issue for, for the US is China. The problem is that Ukraine fought for its independence. At that point, it was a flagrant violation of international right and the West could not avoid to support Ukraine in its fight. But all the discussion about uh, this being a threat by US to, to Russia is nonsense because the main European and US answer to the invasion was uh, inviting Zelensky to flee the country. We will give you asylum. That was what we offered initially, not the weapons. So the, this means that the NATO is not an uh, uh, efficient security guarantee. We need to create a European defense. And if we do, NATO changes for good. Because today, NATO is the US army with plenty of small things around that uh, are useless alone. They all are based on the military capacity of the US yeah. I mean, for transport, logistics, and so on. When we had a European mission against Libya, led by France and the UK, after four days, they finished their ammunition and they had to ask the US for ammunition. That's our military capacity. So we need to create a European defense. If we do, NATO stop being this instrument of American hegemon in Europe, but becomes the, the place where there is an equal partnership between the US and Europe. And at that point, everything changes because this creates a different set of incentives. At that point, the US, will, first, we will have our own deterrent capacity and so on. But anyway, the US will be willing to help us because they will think that they will need us elsewhere. Just like we have our European uh, mission to the Pacific uh, to defend Taiwan and so on, in the South China Sea, etc., to help the US because the US asked us basically. So the, I mean, the US are exposed in many more places than we are. So if we have a really military capacity, then the alliance became an equal partnership and the US will stick to the defense of Europe because they will need us elsewhere as well. And we will have a real military capacity. So this would strengthen the West a lot. While if we don't, NATO is just in the hand of the US. If they want to protect us, they will. If they don't want, we are done. I mean, I, I'm totally in agreement with you that we do need to move towards an integrated sort of European defense force. That, there's no question about that. I think the kind of the, the kind of structure you are kind of thinking of make 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 sense. But but I, I don't really quite see. Um, I mean, do you think that a this kind of integrated de defense capability um, would be a real possibility? In the absence of the United States of Europe, in other words, you know how you know, like how how you know, well, it's chicken and egg, isn't it? What what would have to come Absolutely. first? But the issue is what the, the this question begs the other question of what is the European Union? Now, in my view, the European Union is essentially a federation in the making. We may not call it the United States of Europe and call it European Union, but if it is a federal system, it works. And the issue is that today the European Union pretends to be one organization, but in fact, there are two. Because on the one hand, there is the European Union on economy and monetary issue, which works very much as a federal system where we have QMV, preeminence of European law over national law, single currency, single market, yeah, really well. single yeah. representation on trade. And this is very much a federal system. The difference is that in normal federal system, the federal system applies to all competencies. While we have other competencies like internal affairs, foreign affairs, security, taxation, where we have a confederal system where unanimity prevails. So the possibility to create the United States of Europe rests with moving all the other competencies to the ordinary legislative procedure, where we have co-decision between the parliament and the council, which is very much like uh, uh, the Bundestag and the Bundesrat in Germany, and with the commission as the federal government. We may not call it uh, a federal government and continue to call it commission, but if it has the power of a federal government, it's fine. So if we create a European defense and foreign policy, 
basically we are transforming the union into a fully fledged federal system, even if we don't call it formally United States of Europe, but European Union, which is a perfectly fine name. I mean, we should not forget that Switzerland is officially the Swiss Confederation, even if uh, with the constitutional reform of the 19th century, it stopped being a confederation and became a federation, but kept the old name. So I have no problem with keeping the European Union name, but we need to move all competencies to the ordinary legislative procedure, which means to make it work in a federal system, get rid of unanimity in the whole decision-making system, including treaty reform and ratification, and in this way, we have a fully-fledged uh, uh, federal system if we give the commission fiscal power, responsibility over the military, and so on and so forth. So, so, so that, that's right. So, so I, I, yeah, I totally agree with you. But the question then is, then it becomes a very complex and a very quite an unwieldy structure because we have to integrate or we have to you know, federalize in many different areas. We, talk, we talked about taxation earlier. We talked about... And, and there's so many, there's another sovereign debt, you know, and, and Europe bonds and so on and so forth. There's a whole host of different areas. Um, and then there's things like European minimum wage and there's there's European health policy and there's, and it goes on and on. So it's not just uh, defense uh, and money. There's sure. all these others. And, you know, and so my question is, <coughs> it's one of sort of low hanging fruits, given that all of these things you know, sort of like require further integration. And in a way, we need to move all of this forward in some ways at the same time. Two questions. A, what are the kind of, what would be easy wins? Where, where should we focus to kind of move this on quickly? You know, as you said, we may actually find ourselves with a huge stumbling block on defense because of this kind of German ambition to spend a hundred billion and in a way blocking a European kind of coming together through that. There may be other areas where it's easier at that point to federalize. That's the first question. The second question is, is any of this really possible in a serious fashion without constitutional reform in other words without another maastricht kind of moment um so what, what do you kind of what are the low-hanging fruits yeah. we need uh, we need treaty reform to do that and my uh, my take is that we may get it now because the issue is there has been the conference of the future of europe it has produced a number of requests that imply treaty reform to strengthen the competition power of the union if we start treaty reform and one of the key issues for everybody is to get rid of unanimity well, then we are going precisely in this direction. And even if it may look very complex, it's technically very simple because we already have in place a federal structure regarding the economy. So we are just moving certain policy from one area, special procedure to the ordinary procedure where we have the co-decision, the commission makes the proposal, the council and the parliament decide and so on. So, and this can be done for health, fiscal, uh, foreign security policy. I mean, from a juridical point of view, it's not that difficult. The point, the difficulty is the political will. But we have the crisis, we have the war in Ukraine. So there is a great request from the citizen to have a European defense, to see that Europe is able and willing to play a role on the international arena. And this we should exploit. So there is a request, there is the possibility to start a treaty reform. It's up to the parliament to make a formal proposal of the amendments to the, to the European Council in 2024 for June, possibly to uh, vote on a convention for treaty reform. We should never forget that to start the process, a simple majority in the European Council is enough. So we only need 14 countries to start uh, the, the procedure. Of course, that we, in theory, we need unanimity to finish the procedure. But I would like to recall us that uh, in the history of a uh, federal system, every time that a confederal system became a federal system, it did so by inserting in the reform a specific clause on the, on the ratification of the new constitution, basically. This happened in the US uh, uh, Constitution of 1787. This happened in the Swiss uh, Constitution in the 19th century. This happened in, uh, in the Australian Constitution. But this happened also on the federal uh, German Constitution imposed by the American that was ratified by majority because everybody knew that Bavaria would never ratify. And in fact, Bavaria still now has not ratified the German Grundgesetz uh, and so on. So, I think that the crucial issue in the next reform would be to have a, a final clause 
about its own ratification that overcome the unanimity foreseen in current Article 48. So I think that Article 48 can be used to start the reform process, not to finish it. And my view is that considering that uh, the Conference on the Future of Europe asked to create a European referendum, I think that the, uh, the clause on ratification should provide for a European referendum of ratification with double majority in a sense that we need uh, to recognize the federal nature of the EU, which is not a nation state. So we cannot just count European citizens and if there is a majority that applies everywhere. This would be a national system, not a federal system. A federal union is a union of citizens and of states, member states. So we need to ratify the constitution if there is a majority of European citizens, but only among the member states where there is also a national majority. In those member states where there is not a majority at the national level, they should be able to vote again in six months to decide if they want to ratify or if they want to quit the union and negotiate a different arrangement that can be stay inside the single market or inside the level of integration we have now and so on and so forth. We can also think about different level of membership, full membership, associate membership and so on. In order to arrange the diversity, of the, uh, or we can have a specific reserve, reservation. We should not forget that after Maastricht, in Maastricht we had the opting out. So we had the UK opting out of the monetary union, Denmark as well. Denmark was opting out of defense policy as well. And now they came in with the referendum two weeks ago. So we can arrange the variety having members that have specific opt out on specific policy. This is part of uh, uh, differentiated federalism that exists in many uh, federal system in Spain, for example. So should we, we should not worry uh, about uh, uh, these things. We are uh, able to take care of the complexity and differentiation of the union, but we need to get rid of unanimity. And uh, the most democratic way and the most legitimate way, in my view, is to do it through a European referendum with double majority. So, we count the European citizen as such. And that but would also be, just, to, just to make it very clear, so, so that would be a European referendum on this principle of unanimity? On the new constitution that, in my view, should abolish uh, the unanimity uh, rule. But the unanimity would be only would be one aspect of that constitution. There would be other aspects to that yes. constitution as well. But my view is that the reform, the new constitution the, the, or treaty, if we just make a reform of the treaty with some... Uh, small but very big amendments, few amendments, but very important, if you like, is if we get rid of unanimity on everything. If we uh, decide that all policies are decided in the same way, with the co-decision between parliament and council voting by qualifying majority. If the commission takes the executive role on all uh, European Union policies. If we strengthen the competencies on health, uh, fiscal uh, uh, policy, foreign defense policy, I mean, if we implement the proposal coming out of the Conference of the Future of Europe, then we are creating a federal system. And in this case, we should create also the European referenda as proposed by the Conference of the Future of Europe and to have a clause, a final clause about the ratification of the new reform, providing to use this new institution of European referenda to ratify it. So in, in terms of a sort of a, 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 a reform of the sort of the European constitution, um, and potentially sort of a referendum tied in with that. Um, what kind of time scale are, are you thinking is reasonable? Well, I think that uh, if uh, we start now a process of reform, we can uh, close it very quickly because we already know what we want to do. We want to implement the proposal of the Conference on the Future of Europe. And then we can think about having the referendum, for example, if we, so, if we start in the mid of 2022, and we finish uh, in 2023, we can uh, have a referendum, for example, together with the European election of 2024. So the uh, European election and the European referendum would be together in uh, end of May of 2024. This could be a reasonable timetable. So in two years, we would be able to have uh, a reform uh, EU. And, and so are you saying, because of course, you know, being, being not really involved with European politics at this, you know, at the coal phase, are you saying that there are actual processes in play 
uh, that are moving towards a constitutional reform and a referendum within that two-year time frame? Or is this something you would like to see? Or is this, are you saying well, there's something... Uh, well, the European Parliament has asked to start now the reform. If we start now the reform, it's 2022, we can finish in 2023 and have the ratification in 2024. So it's a reasonable timetable. The point is we will see if the parliament will manage to convince a majority of member states to go this way. And the crucial issue is if France, Germany, uh, Italy, Spain uh, have uh, the, this, make the decision to make that package deal that we mentioned before. So that inside the reform, we have the decision to create a European defense, which means that we pull together the resources, but that there is also a plan for the Europeanization of the French Force Trap and UNC. If this is in, we are able to do the reform. If this is not there, it's difficult. Because if France doesn't put what it can, it's difficult that Germany does. So- uh, But I don't, I mean, if you're looking at the sort of the Macron's first term, he, he wasn't the problem when it comes to European reform. It was Merkel who blocked every single uh, attempt. Absolutely. But we should, we should not forget that when there was uh, the renewal of the Franco-German uh, uh, friendship treaty, the uh, German proposal was to insert the proposal of a European seat in the UN. And the French were opposed and rather put that France would be would support the idea of a German seat in the UN Security Council, which was a very cheap offer because there is no chances for Germany to get a seat in the UN. There are already two European countries in the UN Security Council. There is no appetite in the world, nowhere to get a third permanent or semi-permanent Security Council seat for Germany. So this was very cheap for France to pledge its support for something that had no chances, whatever. But the fact that they preferred that to the idea of a European Security Council shows that there was some resistance. It's also true that we should never forget that when Macron was first elected, after two weeks, he was under attack of the chief of military chief of staff that resigned by saying that Macron wanted to sell out the French military to European level and give up, gave up uh, the force of France. This, of course, had an impact on the availability by Macron to go that way before being reelected. But in the second term is the last term. So we may hope that Macron will have more uh, courage and more willingness to go ahead now that he uh, has been reelected. And uh, it's very important to this end what will happen next Sunday in the second round of the parliamentary election in France. Yeah. Because one thing is if Macron gets a majority in the National Assembly, a different thing is if, if Macron doesn't get a majority yeah. in the National Assembly. So for the, from the European Union perspective and the chances for more European integration, it's very important that Macron gets a majority in the National uh, Assembly as well. This may open the way for this big package deal that will strengthen the European Union significantly, will open us a reform process that will allow us to go ahead. So, I mean, really, what's, the, the next six months are quite interesting in many respects. I mean, Macron may or may not sort of consolidate his, his position in France. Um, the midterm elections in the US are going to happen in the autumn. That'll say a lot about basically the, the remaining two uh, years of, of Joe Biden's uh, administration. The war in Ukraine is going to be, in my view, if not decided within the next six months, it's going to really, we've got to get a very clear sense of where this is headed, whether, whether this is going to turn into a kind of a, a, a slow burn kind of ongoing conflict or whether Russia and, and Ukraine will somehow split up the country uh, between them. Um, so, so what I'm thinking is, is like when we when we look at sort of like say six months from now, we, we'll kind of get a clear sense of the fallout from this conference as well. We'll have a sort of a sense of the dust will have settled. We'll have a sense where Germany stands on this, where France stands on this, where Italy stands on this, uh, where other kind of smaller European countries stand on this too. Um, and 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 maybe in six months' time is a better time to kind of to to, to kind of you know tempt a kind of a, a prognosis about how this process might might unfold over the next two to three years. So what what I wonder is uh, um, Roberto, if we if we were to meet again for a, a, another uh, uh, reboot, a dialogue, you know, like 
in the autumn, uh, in, in six months time, uh, would it be a meaningful thing, a meaningful discussion to have to look at the fallout from the conference six months on, you know, on the base of what happened in Ukraine, on the base of what happened in the US, on the base of what happened in France, and indeed also on the base of what happens in Germany, because it isn't entirely clear to me whether the, uh, the current coalition in Germany will hold for another six months. There is increasing tear and, and, and dissatisfaction within the German... Absolutely. The so, so, it so, makes sense, uh, and uh, time uh, is short, also for a different reason. The possibility to, this pack, to decide on this package deal uh, is now when in Italy we have a Draghi government of national unity that is pushing also former uh, nationalist forces to embrace a pro-European stand. But we don't know what will happen in Italy in, after next spring uh, election in 2023. So the time is now, and the next six months will absolutely be crucial. Regarding Ukraine, I'm a pessimist. I mean, the historical experience suggests that when a great power attacks a smaller power and, fight, uh, and finds uh, uh, people resistance, it's impossible to win. At the same time, it will not get out easily without losing face. So it will stay there in a war of attrition that can be also very bloody and cruel for a long time. This happened to the US in Vietnam, to the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, again to the US in Afghanistan. So I'm in the European public opinion has been looking at this Ukraine war as if it was going to end soon, if there was the chance of a diplomatic breakthrough that will bring peace soon. But history suggests that this is probably not the case, yeah. unfortunately. And that we need to be prepared that uh, the economic uh, fallout of the war will last for long, that the sanction will be there to stay, that the war will continue with all the suffering for the Ukraine and so on. And we should never forget that the first uh, European to die under the Euro European flag were the, the Ukrainians in 2014 in Euromaidan. And again now. And I think that this will have an impact also in the decision to grant Ukraine candidate status next June. Absolutely. So, so how do you feel about having that sort of another installment, another reboot dialogue in six months' time? Because I think at that point, this idea of constitutional reform paired with a referendum, that they will either have kind of just dissipated and, and been grinded down in a kind of political kind of dread, deadlock, or, or it might actually begin to really come to fruition. And then it'll be a very exciting time to, to follow that and to see how that develops. Roberto, are you still there? I have lost you there. Yes, I, I'm very happy to do that thing this month. Excellent, excellent. You were, you, the image just froze and you came back. I'm, I'm sorry. No worries at all. It was perfect timing. So um, great. Okay, so let's do that. It's now seven past five and I believe you have a follow-on uh, meeting to attend to. Yes. Uh, Roberto, thank you very, very much. It's been really very insightful and, and really interesting. Uh, let's, let's stay in touch over the next six months and see how we can shape this a little bit more uh, and make this an interesting follow-on conversation in about six months' time. Sure. Thanks a lot, Nico. Well, thank Bye. you very much. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye-bye.